last investigator I chatted with for this program was another Hoosier or Hoosier transplant, Dr. Brian Schneider, who reviewed with me several cases from his practice, beginning with yet another patient where the clinical dilemma was whether to utilize adjuvant chemotherapy. This first case is a 58-year-old lady who was undergoing normal screening mammography and was found to have a two-centimeter area of concern at about the 7 o'clock position. So she underwent a core needle biopsy, which confirmed invasive ductal cancer. So she ultimately underwent surgery for this. She had a lumpectomy with sentinel lymph node biopsy. The tumor was 2.3 centimeters. It was ER positive, PR negative, and HER2 negative. It was a grade 2 tumor, and the sentinel lymph node was negative as well. What was her life situation? She actually was a housewife, a stay-at-home mom. She had two children. Did she have any preconceived notions about cancer treatment, breast cancer treatment, chemotherapy, for example? No, but I will tell you this lady, especially for someone who really didn't have a strong family history for malignancy, was very well read. And how much of that had come in a short interval versus just being someone who was aware of things was actually quite impressive. So she's postmenopausal. She's postmenopausal. So I guess the big question in her is going to be about chemo. That's exactly right. And so we spent a great deal of time discussing and emphasizing that the backbone of her therapy was going to be hormonal therapy, of course, and that really the question revolved around whether adding cytotoxic therapy to the hormonal therapy would provide some realistic benefit. And, you know, I'll tell you, she had realistic expectations. She was the type person who, if there was going to be a negligible benefit, didn't want to do chemotherapy. But if there was a substantial clinical benefit, she certainly would be open to the idea of doing it. So I guess just based on those numbers, without any further information, she would have pretty substantial risk of recurrence with a 2.3 centimeter tumor. Yeah, and we actually went through different algorithms, including the adjuvant online, and we estimated based on her characteristics and being in very good health, almost a 20% chance of mortality from this tumor. And that was even with endocrine therapy? That's with endocrine therapy. Right. And I guess up until a few years ago, this woman for sure would have gotten chemotherapy. Absolutely. Because I guess it was going back to 2000 when they had the consensus conference there, the bar was kind of one centimeter. Right. So she's clearly over that. And obviously the issue here is about oncotype. You know, I think this is the sort of case that fits perfectly into oncotype, both from a biology standpoint, you have a grade two tumor. So this certainly isn't your indolent grade one sort of tumor. It was PR negative, and the size fit perfectly in being a couple centimeters in size. So we did talk at length about Oncotype DX. So you ended up getting it? We did. And I did offer her also enrollment in our Taylor RX trial, explaining to her that there would be a portion of the patients who would fall into an intermediate risk category, and this would comprise about a quarter of the patients, and that we really didn't know in that intermediate risk group whether or not chemotherapy would be the right thing to do or that it would add substantial benefit. So maybe you can kind of review what the design of that study is and how she responded when you brought up the possibility of her being in it. So the Taylor X trial is a large multi-institutional trial through the intergroup, which is specifically using Oncotype DX to help stratify patients for therapy. The patients who ultimately have a low-risk recurrence score will go on to receive standard hormonal therapy. Those in the high-risk category will go on to receive oncologist choice of chemotherapy followed by hormonal therapy. And then the intermediate risk category, which the numbers have been slightly modified to help prevent 
under-treating patients with chemotherapy will be randomized in a one-to-one fashion to chemotherapy or not, followed by hormonal therapy. And I guess it's been a long time since we did a randomized trial between chemo and not, although I guess it's really chemo plus endocrine versus endocrine alone, but where the randomization is, the computer is going to determine whether you get chemo. Absolutely. How do you find people responding? How did she respond to that idea? Yeah, I mean, she was very understanding of the concept and thought it was a great idea. Her major concern was just that, and that her idea was that this was a coin deciding whether or not she was going to get chemotherapy. And she felt with all the available information we had that we would probably do a better job of making that decision together as opposed to letting it be a random event. It's really amazing to me. There's been very good accrual in that study, but I guess there are just so many patients eligible for it. Yeah, you know, my own impression has been if you can enroll someone prior to getting the Oncotype DX, they're much more receptive. I think after someone visualizes a score, they have a lot of trouble trying to enroll at that point. So, I mean, overall, what fraction of patients agree to go in the study that you presented to? I would say it's about one in four to two in four. Hmm. So, okay, so the trial then is off the table. Did you go ahead and send the Oncotype? So she loved the idea of the Oncotype DX, and so we did send an Oncotype DX on her. And, of course, she ended up in the intermediate risk category. What was the number? She had a 19 So that's kind of low intermediate. She was on the low intermediate side. So there, I guess we don't really have the answer. That's why the study is being done. Correct. And so what was the next step in terms of trying to decide at that point? Well, we went a little out of sequence here because it was at that point that we actually did the adjuvant online. And I generally like the Oncotype DX first because it gives more of a tailored or individualized score. But there are good data to suggest that adjuvant online actually adds or has independent prognostic capacity in addition to the Oncotype DX. And I think it is a really nice way of allowing a patient to visually see, number one, what the risk of relapse is and how big or small the incremental benefit of chemotherapy is. And so what did you see there on adjuvant? So from a mortality standpoint, and this fits kind of with our large trials, there was about a 3 to 4% improvement in mortality from the addition of chemotherapy to hormonal therapy. It would be substantially higher if you look only at relapse. But that's all comers. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, until we have the results of the Taylor X trial in this intermediate risk group, we simply aren't going to have anything better. So I take it that you would have been comfortable if her score was low, not giving her chemo, and if it was high, definitely giving her chemo. Absolutely. And, you know, that's almost the bargain that I make with every patient before we order the test, is that they have to be comfortable with the flexibility of either doing or not. Otherwise, really doing the test is a waste of time. Is there a size, even with the Oncotype data, that you start to get a little bit nervous about using Oncotype? This already is not the smallest tumor, 2.3 centimeters. What about 3, 3.5, 4? I think between 3 to 5 centimeters, I start becoming quite nervous. Anything under 3 centimeters, I'm very comfortable with. You know, the majority of the patients in the NSABP trials were stage 1 patients, so they are a bit of a lower-risk population. But clearly, on the multivariate analysis, size did not appear to matter. But then you have to start thinking about the fractions of patients that were actually in that category of 4, 5-centimeter tumors, and the numbers become quite smaller. So as I approach over 3 to 3.5 centimeters, I start becoming nervous with using this test. What about in the smaller tumors? Of course, we're talking about HER2-negative tumors. I assume, do you ever send an oncotype in a patient with a HER2-positive tumor? Never. So we're talking about HER2-negative. 
ER positive. Correct. And then what about the smaller tumor, the half a centimeter? Will you send an oncotype? And if so, if it's high, will you give chemo? What about, you know, three millimeters? Is there kind of, again, a lower bar? Yeah, and I, mean, I think if you look at prior registry data, those tumors under 5 millimeters really do quite well. And I have never sent one under 5 millimeters. And my recollection is it probably wouldn't get reimbursed either, frankly. The harder areas between the 5 to 10 millimeter area, I do believe there are biologically a subset of these tumors that do poorly. And so for those essentially closer to the one centimeter size, if they have things in their pathology that worry me, maybe it's low percent ER positivity, grade high, other adverse features, I will certainly entertain the possibility of Oncotype DX. What about the use of Oncotype in patients who have node positive tumors? It's a very provocative question. You know, it's amazing how much we have shifted our focus from size of tumor and lymph node status to biology of tumor. And one really has to wonder if the magic lymph node positivity really does make a difference, or is this just simply a spectrum in terms of growth and size? An interesting study was presented by Kathy Albain that looked at the use of the Oncotype DX in the lymph node positive population. This was a SWOG trial that randomized patients from tamoxifen to CAF with tamoxifen concurrently or CAF followed by tamoxifen sequentially. And if you'll remember in that trial, the group that got concurrent tamoxifen with chemotherapy did no better than the control arm. So they threw that arm out but looked at the other two arms and applied Oncotype DX. And they found a similar biologic theme, and that is in the low-risk category, those with low-risk recurrence scores really didn't gain a ton incrementally from the addition of chemotherapy. So I think it does suggest that there are subgroups of patients, even with lymph node positivity, that truly at the end of the day may not need chemotherapy. The problem with extrapolating that data and making that the standard of care is that the risk of relapse was substantially high in that, even in the low-risk category. And there are lots of possible reasons for that, including the type of chemotherapy that was used at the time of the trial and others. So I think I wouldn't broad spectrum use this in a lymph node positive population, but certainly could be valuable for those with minimal lymph node positivity who have comorbidities that you really want to avoid chemotherapy in. Any other sort of patient situations where you use this in a node positive tumor? Generally, it's elderly or comorbidities where I'm trying to avoid chemotherapy at the present. What about using Oncotype or other predictors in terms of neoadjuvant therapy? The difficulty with use in neoadjuvant setting is that often you don't have a real understanding of the lymph node status. And so my fear is if you find someone who's low risk and then ultimately goes on to have lymph node positivity, you may have reimbursement issues, frankly. And one of the things that Oncotype has started to do is to provide quantitative ER and PR. And you just mentioned the fact that you kind of think about that when you're making this decision. Of course, once you have the Oncotype, you have the whole Oncotype there. But do you sort of approach this differently in a patient whose ER is sort of borderline or not very high as opposed to a patient of very, very high ER? I certainly don't because the ER is figured into the quantitative formula for recurrent score, so it actually does that for you. Where I have found that helpful is I've had a few patients who were, for instance, PR positive, ER negative, or very weakly ER positive, where I truly thought, you know, this is a patient I'd be pretty nervous about doing only hormonal therapy for, but then we send and we get PCR results showing 
truly ER positivity or strong ER positivity, which then makes me feel much better when I see the recurrent score translating into one that's low. So this kind of sounds like it's leading towards her getting chemo. She did opt to do chemotherapy. And, you know, we spent a great deal of time as well selecting the regimen. And, you know, in this group that's lymph node negative and estrogen receptor positive, my bias is try to avoid long-term toxicities if possible. And so after going through several possibilities, we decided to do four cycles of docetaxel and cyclophosphamide. And again, I think if we were to present this in a national poll, we have presented cases like this, we would see that that is the most common regimen used for this situation. I guess the whole issue there, this is pretty new in oncology in the last few years, is trying to avoid the anthracycline and either the risk of leukemia or cardiac damage. Yeah, I think the cardiac damage in particular is one I worry about because it's real and it can truly change someone's life forever. What are your thoughts in terms of who should be ordering the Oncotype? Now, in this situation, you had this long talk with her, and then you decided to do it. But also, that's going to give you another couple-week delay, I guess. What about surgeons ordering Oncotype? Yeah, at our institution at Indiana University, our surgeons frequently talk to our patients about doing the Oncotype DX for the reasons you've mentioned. It's very convenient, such that when I finally meet the patient when they've healed up from surgery, they also have an Oncotype in hand. The one caveat is that we do believe that enrollment in TaylorRx is quite important. And for the reasons I mentioned, I think it's really a good idea to try to counsel patients for the trial prior to receiving the Oncotype DX score. So I do ask our surgeons if they're going to bring up the idea of an Oncotype DX to also bring up the idea of the TaylorRx trial. So how did she do with the chemo, the TC? She did great with chemotherapy, very minimal toxicity, very minor nail damage. And then hormones? We chose to do anastrozole. So where is this woman right now? So she actually had relapsed after about a year and a half of hormonal therapy. So she got anastrozole, and while getting anastrozole, she developed a recurrence? That's correct. Wow. And not only did she develop a recurrence, she developed bad recurrence. She progressed in a way that I found quite odd, actually. She progressed coming in symptomatic, both from a shortness of breath standpoint, a cough, appetite loss, weight loss, and on staging had significant progression with lymphangitic spread to the lung and also heavy burden disease in the liver with mild LFT elevations and actually was completely caught off guard even though she had had an intermediate score on her Oncotype DX. This clearly is not the normal way one would see an ER-positive tumor relapse, both in terms of short time interval and the extent of disease. So the first thing I wanted to do was rebiopsy her. We know that there is a change in her two status and ER status in probably about 20% of patients. I thought it would be reasonable to see if she maybe had converted or was HER2 positive because it certainly looked more like a HER2 positive tumor and would also provide us some additional targets in terms of our therapy. And the biopsy demonstrated ER positivity, HER2 negativity, looked exactly like her primary breast cancer did. So how did you manage her? Well, you know, the first paradigm really to think through is whether or not one should approach this with additional hormonal therapy. And, you know, classically in a patient who has estrogen receptor positive disease and who I believe has endocrine sensitive disease, 
I try to maximize the duration of hormonal therapy. This patient, however, didn't seem like someone who had hormone-sensitive disease relapsing after a very short time on adjuvant hormonal therapy. And although I think we really overuse the term visceral crisis, this is someone who had involvement of both her lung and liver and was clearly symptomatic. And so the first fork in the road was to make the decision to go straight to chemotherapy as opposed to hormonal therapy. So we chose to do chemotherapy. And where is she right now? She is about six months into therapy, actually doing well. She had a modest response radiographically and a pretty nice response symptomatically. What kind of chemo did she get? I chose to use paclitaxel with bevacizumab. After about six months of therapy, she has now developed some rather severe neuropathies, and I am stopping the paclitaxel and continuing the bevacizumab and have just talked to her about restarting hormonal therapy. Any problems with the bevacizumab? Sometimes people get hypertension. Did she get that? She's had very little in terms of hypertension, although she does have some mild headaches with it. And I guess we know right now that in this situation, again, you present this case to oncologists or researchers, and the most common choice they're going to make is exactly the same when you did paclitaxel, bevacizumab. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in bevacizumab, not just breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, renal cancer, a whole bunch of tumors. Can you talk a little bit about how it works and you know, sort of the theory behind you know, why it's effective? Yeah, so some of the basic principles of tumor growth is knowing that tumors require blood supply as they grow and that angiogenesis is a fundamental hallmark or property of malignancy. And so there has been extensive work done by many labs. Judah Folkman, as you know, pioneered many of these works in an attempt to shut down, essentially, this blood flow to tumors using drugs that would block angiogenesis. So bevacizumab is probably the most mature of the anti-VEGF drugs in that it's a humanized monoclonal antibody that binds to the target vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF. Before you go on, can you talk a little bit more about the basic biology of how VEGF works? Yeah, so, you know, VEGF is upregulated through a cascade in a variety of circumstances. The classic one we think about in tumor biology is hypoxia. So as a tumor grows and gets further away from the vasculature, the center portion gets hypoxic. And there is a gene upstream from VEGF called hypoxia-inducible factor 1-alpha, which is a very dynamic gene, meaning it can change its production in a very short time. And so as the microenvironment becomes hypoxic, you'll see massive upregulation of HIF-1, which subsequently stimulates an increased production of VEGF. And how does bevacizumab work? So bevacizumab specifically binds to VEGF with the idea of decreasing the vascular endothelial growth factor. The classic thought has been that by using an anti-VEGF drug, you decrease blood vessel growth to tumors, although more recently there have been other mechanisms proposed, such as normalizing the interstitial pressure of tumors, making the vasculature more pretty so that you get your delivered chemotherapy in more effectively. I guess one of the questions that's come up, I mean, it's a common question in oncology, is trying to find the patient who's going to benefit from treatment and identify people who won't benefit so that they don't have to receive it or can receive some other treatment. We've had some success in different parts of oncology with doing that, but bevacizumab, it's been kind of a challenge, and this is a drug that's used an awful lot, as I mentioned You've been involved in research trying to figure out who does better with bevacizumab. Can you review that? 
It is a bit frustrating because bevacizumab is a classic targeted agent. It is targeted against VEGF and it hits VEGF. We know that. The unfortunate thing is we haven't been very good at predicting which patients are going to benefit from the inhibition of VEGF. And there have been a lot of attempts in order to try to find these subgroups. These include things like serum levels of VEGF, looking at tumor expression of VEGF and VEGF receptors, and none of them have really worked all that well to date. Our group had taken a little different approach in trying to find genetic variations within VEGF, and this is not genetic variations within the tumor of VEGF, but in our own body, the host DNA, to see if we could predict which patients would respond best to anti-VEGF therapies. And what's the bottom line? So we retrospectively looked at the clinical trial E2100, which was a phase three trial that took patients who had never been treated with chemotherapy for metastatic breast cancer. They were randomized to a control arm of paclitaxel or paclitaxel with bevacizumab. And in that trial, we found two VEGF SNPs, which predicted a significant improvement in overall survival. And probably as importantly is those SNPs in the control arm predicted no benefit. And if you did a test for interaction, it did suggest this was a predictive marker. And what is a SNP? A SNP is a single nucleotide polymorphism, so it's simply a base change in the DNA. Hmm. Let's maybe take a look at your case, your 58-year-old woman, and just go back and have you tell us how you would have managed her if everything was exactly the same, same tumor size, everything the same, with one exception, that instead of it being HER2 negative, it was HER2 positive. How would that have affected the way you would approach this? So I think what has become clear over the last few years is that the HER2 positive tumors require HER2 blockade. And if you think about your therapies as an attempt to dig a hole, the HER2 blockade is a bulldozer and your chemotherapy is a shovel. And so clearly she would need HER2 manipulation. My probable general approach would have been to use one of the standard regimens such as carboplatin, docetaxel, Herceptin, and I wouldn't argue with someone using an anthracycline-based regimen either. Now, in this situation, the tumor is 2.3 centimeters and node negative. What about the situation where it's smaller, under a centimeter, but yet still HER2 positive? What do we know about the prognosis in a patient like that and whether or not trastuzumab would be something to think about? Well, in all of our randomized phase three trials to date, it seems that a centimeter has kind of been the cutoff. And so anything above a centimeter, I think we have level one evidence to use Herceptin-based therapies along with chemotherapy. In the sub-centimeter setting, this is very tricky because I don't know that we really know the natural outcome of these tumors. There is a very interesting pilot trial being done by the Dana-Farber looking at these very tiny HER2-positive tumors, and they're simply receiving weekly paclitaxel for 12 weeks along with one year of trastuzumab-based therapy. And I think this will be a very good indicator of what the general prognosis of these small tumors are. I do think the mistake one can make in these very tiny tumors is increasing the risk of morbidity. And so in the smaller tumors, I do think using an anthracycline with trastuzumab is probably a mistake because then you really have to wonder how you're pushing the risk of cardiac toxicity in the face of potentially very small benefit. But I guess this issue of an anthracycline and a patient getting trastuzumab, you know, is a pretty large issue, period, not just in patients with maybe better risk tumors. 
Do you use anthracyclines in these patients, even if they're node positive? My general approach is I do not use anthracyclines. I think the largest criticism to date of the BCRG data, which is fantastic data, is that it's simply not been published at this point. Are there any clinical trials right now that you're putting patients on with HER2-positive disease that a patient like that might be eligible for? For HER2-positive disease, I think the ALTO trial would be a very reasonable trial. Can you explain what that looks like? So ALTO is an adjuvant trial attempting to improve on the HER2 blockade, which we know to be important. And since the advent of trastuzumab, another very effective agent has been developed in lapatinib. Lapatinib also blocks HER2, but in a slightly different way. It is a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor that blocks both HER1 and HER2. It's working inside the cell. That's right. So preventing the downstream activation of these cells. Whereas trastuzumab is on the outside as an antibody. That's right. And in a phase three trial, the pivotal trial for lapatinib, they looked at a group of patients who had progressed on prior chemotherapy and trastuzumab and randomized them to chemotherapy with lapatinib or not and demonstrated substantial benefit, showing that this is yet another effective way with possibly some cross-sensitivity. And so this is an adjuvant trial attempting to make better what is already good. And it's randomizing patients to a control arm, which is standard chemotherapy with trastuzumab for a year, or standard chemotherapy with trastuzumab followed by lapatinib, or trastuzumab with lapatinib, or lapatinib alone. So trying to really answer which of these agents or which combination of these agents will provide maximum benefit for patients with HER2-positive disease. Now, you were talking about bevacizumab or Avastin. That's also being looked at in the adjuvant setting in patients with HER2-positive tumors in the so-called BETH trial that's looking at chemotrastuzumab or chemotrastuzumab plus bevacizumab. What's the thinking there? Well, the idea is that many tumors that are HER2-positive actually overexpress VEGF, which we know to be a target for bevacizumab, and actually some very provocative preclinical data by Godfrey Konechny has demonstrated quite an abundance of VEGF production in these tumors. There have also been some early phase trials combining trastuzumab with bevacizumab in the advanced setting, showing reasonably good response. So I think the idea here is you're actually possibly capturing a population who really stand a benefit from dual blockade. Any comments in terms of HER2 testing, and for that matter, ER testing? Obviously, you listen to these cases, you realize how critical it is nowadays in determining therapy for breast cancer patients. Where are we in terms of accuracy of these tests? Yeah, this is quite frightening when you think about how we pivot all of our decisions on the accuracy of both ER and HER2. It is one reason I really do like the Oncotype DX in that you get a standardized estrogen receptor, HER2 score back. I think it really also speaks to trusting your pathologist and making sure that if things aren't making sense clinically, to have a very low threshold to repeat testing. And likewise, at times of progression or relapse, truly considering retesting these things.